This is, as you know, Palm Sunday. Uh, boy, Easter sneaks up on us fast, especially when it's the first Sunday in April, but we are so thankful that uh, one week from today, we are getting back to our Easter breakfast, the fellowship, the Somebody said pancakes. You know, the little kids are excited about pancakes. So I'm excited about being with God's people around tables and sharing a meal together. I'm excited about the fellowship, and I'm excited about the camaraderie and the mutual feeling of awe and just incredible, just celebratory spirit of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is an exciting time. Our Good Friday service back at 1 o'clock next week on Friday, and we're so excited uh, about that. And after Easter, cafe is going to be open. We're putting chairs back to their normal settings, and uh, we're just going to ask you to just use wisdom and be careful, but we are going to celebrate this house of God is going to be filled, and God is going to add to our numbers through salvation and, Lord, people coming in. I just sense that, and it's not going to be long. We're going to be building on the other side of this wall, a great dedicated worship center uh, for the glory of the kingdom of God, the expansion of the kingdom of God in this community, and we're thankful for that. And it's made possible because a faithful people have uh, joined together to accomplish something that no one of us could have done by ourselves. Amen? Amen. So today I want to talk to you about uh, uh, Palm Sunday. The title of my message is Our Substitutionary Sacrifice, but Palm Sunday begins before the sacrifice of Christ with a celebratory uh, spirit. No one except Christ uh, on earth really understood the full uh, understanding of what was going to take place in that week. It starts off incredible. You know, Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem. His disciples question, they say, but Lord, <clears throat> as he's going there, uh, he said that you're going to face arrest and possibly death. You know, the, the religious, religious leaders are after you. They, you know, they almost got you last time, but you got away. Uh, you know, why are you going on? And Jesus kind of turned his face. The verbiage in the uh, Koine Greek is that he turned his face like flint towards Jerusalem, that he knew that he was born for this purpose, that God had created a body for him in a virgin's womb, for him to be born in human flesh, the incredible miracle of the incarnation that God became human flesh, wrapped in human flesh, the beautiful Christmas story. But now he's heading towards Jerusalem to accomplish the purposes of God that he was born for, to be a, a sacrificial lamb of God, to die in the place of sinful humanity, that whosoever would believe on his name might be saved and spared eternal judgment in hell. But here it begins with this incredible celebration. You know, the Palm Sunday events uh, uh, as Jesus goes towards Jerusalem is, is recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, they all talk about it and report it in their historical account. And as he was going up to Jerusalem, there was, the crowds were just at a fever pitch. They were lining the road where he was coming. Jesus riding in on, on, a, on a borrowed donkey, uh, a symbol of peace, not a war horse, but, a, but an animal of peace. And, a, that, and, and Jesus coming in, and the crowds were just, just crazy with excitement. And they were crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the cry of the crowds on Palm Sunday as Jesus came into Jerusalem. And, and as he was coming along, they would also tear off 
palm branches, which is a symbol of nationality for Israel. And they were waving them, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they're also lining the streets. And they were taking off their coats and laying them down for the donkey that was carrying the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, walking towards Jerusalem. It was an incredible celebration. And as he entered Jerusalem, uh, the donkey that he was riding on, uh, he dismounted. And they, as they continued to wave the branches and their, to their coming king. But in reality, we might say that they chose to have a king for a day rather than a suffering savior. They didn't expect him to die a sinner's death on the cross. What they expected was for him to overthrow the Romans and to take the throne of his father David and rule in Jerusalem. They expected to be free from the oppression of the Romans. But we know that when he came the first time, he came, as we know from this side of history, as a suffering savior. When he comes again, and Jesus will return again, he will come again. The scriptures say he will come in the clouds with great glory. That he'll be riding the war horse, and he'll be coming with flames in his eyes. And with, Jude says, with ten thousands of his saints, meaning innumerable. That he will return one day as the conquering king. He will sit and rule on the throne of his father David. But this time they didn't understand that it was necessary that he die for the sins of the world. Five days later, in fact, in Pilate's courtyard, the same crowd that was crying Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were screaming, crucify him, away with him. Pilate, as he was in his courtyard, was perplexed, and he felt really trapped by what they <clears throat> was taking place. He was trapped by the Jews and the Jewish leaders, as they had kind of put him on the spot, and they were kind of enjoying rubbing it in a little bit to him. And he was trying to outsmart them. They were trying to outsmart him. But his, his wife had even come to him, and she said to him in Matthew 27, 19, leave that innocent man alone. I've suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. It was a prophetic dream that you don't want to lay your hands on this person, not realizing in herself that he was the anointed one. Lay not your hands on my anointed, thus saith the Lord. Matthew 27, 24 says that, that Pilate sent for a bowl of water when the Jews kept insisting that he be crucified, that you know, it was the custom that Pilate would release on Passover week that they would release a criminal of their choice. And he said, I'm going to release Barabbas. And we're going to talk about Barabbas a little bit today. And they said, no, no, no. Release him. Crucify Christ. Crucify Jesus. And if he argued with them that they find no fault in him, it says that he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd, symbolizing that I'm innocent of this man, of the responsibility of this man's death, that it's on you. And uh, they were determined uh, to have their way. They had spiked the crowd or, you know, had people in the crowd that were uh, scripted about what to say, much like a lot of the protests so-called today, professional protesters. Uh, they determined, he determined not to kill this innocent man he, as he tried to appease them by having Jesus scourged and brought him back and said, behold the man. You know, what threat is he to you now? What threat? Would you have me crucify your king? And, uh, and they would have none of that. Yes, we want him crucified. But as we talk about this story of his crucifixion and of the events taking place on the Passion Week of Christ, 
The main characters here are Judas. Judas was one of the 12 apostles, those that were closest to Christ. Judas had been with him from the beginning for three to three and a half years. And Judas at this point, as we find out later in the book of John, the gospel of John, is that Judas was pilfering money from the purse, they called it, from the treasury. He was the treasurer. And in Jesus' ministry, many people don't realize that They supported many poor people and widows in particular with uh, resources to help them. And so a lot of money came in, but a lot of money went out. But Judas was kind of pilfering for himself a little bit, probably justifying it, thinking that he deserved it. You know, I I work hard. I deserve a little bit of this. Kind of like the same rationale that some people, when they pilfer from their company or embezzle funds, that they feel entitled to it even though it is a sin and it's wrong. Somebody say amen. But Judas here, he would sell out Jesus, he would betray him to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. And then he would come to regret that. Some say that probably Judas was trying to force Jesus to defend himself and take his throne. But in reality, one has to wonder about the motivation behind Judas's heart. Only God can see the true motivation, but he regretted his decision. He came back and tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't take it. And he threw the money on the floor, and he went out and hung himself and killed himself. So there was a consequence there for his behavior. And then we see the chief priests, or the priests, they had a plot. They'd been plotting to kill Jesus for some time. They were jealous of his following. They were jealous of the success that he had. They were jealous even of the miracles that he did. And in their seemingly kind of spiritual madness, they couldn't even wrap their head around and give glory to God for the miracles that he did, for the demoniacs that he set free, for the lame that he had healed, for the blind that he had opened eyes, for the deaf that he had opened ears for. They, they didn't give God the glory for it. In fact, some of them accused him of doing miracles by Beelzebub or by the devil. Herod is the other one. He was uh, a curious guy. He was kind of a fox, as Jesus referred to him. Uh, pretty sly, pretty conniving. And when he had Jesus brought to him, he demanded a miracle of him. He was excited. He wanted, a, he wanted Jesus to do parlor games for him to show off in front of me and my crowd so that we can be entertained by your power that you have. He's curious for that, and he wanted a miracle, and uh, he finally caved in uh, to Christ's accuser. He sent him back to, uh, to Pilate, much to Pilate's uh, pain and, uh, and his regret. But when we think about Christ, and we think about the criminal named Barabbas, which is, this is really, they wanted Barabbas in his place. Barabbas deserved to die. Barabbas was a thief and a traitor. In Acts chapter 3, 14, Luke, uh, as he writes the book of Acts, uh, he says that he was even a murderer. He was guilty of murder. And, and justice called for him to die on the third cross that day. Three men were going to be crucified, and Barabbas deserved to die. Jesus was innocent of all the charges against him that were brought against him, that were trumped up against him by false witnesses. Even Pilate, as we said, could find no fault in him. And Herod had returned him to Pilate for the same reason. He couldn't find any fault in him to have him put to death. So Jesus was innocent of all the charges brought against him, but the crowd still demanded Jesus die and Barabbas live. 
Now, you have to wonder what the rationale was behind that, except, as we said, they were trumped up. They were probably disappointed that Jesus didn't rise and take his, uh, his father David's throne and rule and throw out the Romans somehow in a powerful, miraculous way. This is what they expected. Can I tell you that many people who put their so-called faith in Christ walk away and backslide because they're disappointed that they don't get what people said Christ would give them, which is not biblical. Every, can I tell you something and burst maybe some bubbles here online, those watching online, but maybe some here, is that Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could be prosperous and rich. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. He died on the cross to remove guilt and shame from your heart and from your conscience. He died on the cross to make you a new creature, free from your past and looking forward to eternity in heaven with the God who loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die. So many people are disappointed when they don't get their way. When something bad comes along, they, they, like, uh, they just like blow away with the wind because they've been told, it's not true, that when you become a Christian, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Okay? How many have found out that that's just not true? How many found out that when bad things do happen, not if they will, but when they do, that we have a God that we can turn to in a time of need? A God who can perform signs, wonders, and miracles. And sometimes, I, I'm just to be honest with you, sometimes sickness is a sickness that leads to death, but for the Christian, that is a victory because he overcame death and hell in the grave. And we will rise, amen? When Jesus comes, our bodies, our graves are going to open, we're going to rise to meet him in the air, in the clouds when Jesus returns. And that is a victory. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus died so that we might live. And Jesus died for this man, Barnabas, or Barabbas. Matthew 27, 26 says, so Pilate caved in. He was pressured on every side. He finally released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus to be flogged, this time with a lead-tipped whip, something more brutal and more uh, sadistic than before. And then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Crucifixion is the cruelest of capital punishment. It is unspeakably sadistic and evil. And yet this is what Christ suffered in our place. He was our substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus did die a substitutionary death for Barabbas, but he also died for us. Remember Peter's Pentecostal Day sermon when he said uh, in Acts chapter 3, verses 13b through 15, he said in his closing remarks on that sermon that was anointed of the Holy Spirit that this is the same Jesus whom, speaking to the Jews on that day, you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy, righteous one, and instead you demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God. Two of my favorite words in all the scriptures, and two of my favorite words in my own life. Because I could see the longer I serve God on this side of grace when I have trusted Him as Savior and Lord. Back in, uh, in uh, November 1st, uh, hard to believe, 1969, 14-year-old boy, is that he has, at that point, freed me from death and hell in the grave. And he released me from captivity of the enemy and from my sins, wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and gave me a reason to live 
to live for his glory and honor and blessing. He died for me. The enemy meant me to die a young death. He meant to destroy my life, even if by suicide, as many of you would testify about your own lives. But God, God stepped in and said, wait a minute. There is a substitutionary sacrifice who paid the penalty for his sins. His name is my son. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He died on the cross for his sins. And I was released because Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. He was my substitutionary sacrifice. And he was Barabbas' substitutionary sacrifice in that day that he lived. But God raised him up from the dead, Jesus Christ. And he and we are his witnesses of this fact is what uh, the word of God declares. And can I tell you something? We who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, he who died in our place today in the 21st century are his witnesses because we know who have received the grace and the mercy of God. We are witnesses in our soul because we know what he did for us that he will do for others. We are his witnesses. Are you sharing with your friends and your family and your neighbors and even with total strangers about the love of God? Are you inviting people to come to church to hear the old, old story of redemption, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ? If you're not, you need to do that. We need to be about in, this la in these last days reaching out, touching lives, telling the old, old story to people how they can be redeemed and forgiven. Somebody say amen. God has called us to be his witnesses, to be his mouthpiece for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand that Jesus died in our place when he was crucified on the cross and that we deserve to be the ones placed on the cross to die because we are the sinful ones. We are the ones who have lived sinful lives. But Christ willingly took the punishment on himself in our place. He substituted himself for us and took what we rightly deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that for God made Christ who never sinned. Listen to that. He never sinned. The Word of God says that He was tempted in all like manner as we, but yet without sin. He never sinned. And He made Him to be, uh, to be a sin offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He traded places with us. We, like Barabbas, are guilty of sin and deserving to die for our sins, but Christ died for us. You think about Barabbas, who was completely guilty, and Christ, who was completely innocent. Think about their reputations. Barabbas was a noted criminal, guilty of evil crimes, including murder, proven beyond the shadow of doubt. And Christ was known for his mercy, his purity, his love and kindness. He was noted for being a, a godly man without sin. And yet he died instead of Barabbas. There's just not fair, is it? Are you like me that I, I grew up in a non-Christian home, but as a boy, you know, we watched uh, television. We had, at that time, some of you will be shocked, the younger people, had three channels and PBS. But every year at uh, Easter, they'd put on a, a Christian movie about Christ and his crucifixion. The King of Kings, the, you know, the uh, greatest story ever told, some of those. They always had something in common. They had a nice-looking, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And I, and I didn't realize that until I grew up, you know, understood the Scripture. He was a Jew. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, okay? 
But uh, the story was the same. And I didn't understand any of it except I watched in horror as this man who had performed miracles and signs and wonders, that he stood before the court with Pilate, that he was scourged and beat for doing nothing but good. And in my young, youthful mind, I kept thinking, this isn't fair. You know, back then, yeah, when they made a movie, Cowboys and Indians, is the good guys always won. There was always justice in the end. But this story was unjust. It was unfair. And, I, and as, a, as a boy, I looked at that and I thought, this just isn't fair. This just isn't right. I didn't understand that it was necessary for my redemption, for my forgiveness, that he die in my place, that he, the innocent, must die so that I might be called the righteousness of God in Christ. The crowds demanded that Christ die. They demanded it. We see in 22 of chapter 27 of Matthew that Pilate responded, you know, when you're saying crucify him away with him, what am I going to do with this Jesus? What am I going to do? And they shouted. They didn't just whisper, but they shouted with a vengeance, crucify him. Hatred had replaced the admiration for him. Hatred, vile hatred, spirit of murder, crucify him. Can I tell you something? The majority is not always right. Sometimes mob rule does what is wrong. Most of the time it's wrong. Mob rule is evil. Mob rule is rebelliousness. The majority is not always right. And you think about just one example of that. The greatest, I think, injustice of our time in the 20th and going into the 21st century is the Supreme Court ruling of Roe v. Wade in 1973. It opened up the door for abortion on demand. 62 plus million babies murdered in our nation alone because of that ruling. Innocent lives of the unborn died for the parents' right to commit immoral acts without responsibilities. One of the greatest excuses, biggest excuses for abortion is, is I just don't want my life taken off track. Can, can I just say without judgmentalism, and if you've committed uh, this terrible act of abortion, there is forgiveness, there is cleansing, there is washing. Christ died in your place on the cross so that you might be forgiven and have the guilt and shame of that taken away, to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So there is hope for you, but, but uh, it is selfish at the idol of immorality, of adultery, fornication, for a baby to be planted in a womb and to be ripped from their mother's womb. Somebody say amen. The, the majority on the Supreme Court was wrong. God help us to get it right in the day and age which we live in. Matthew 27, 25 said all the people yelled back when he said, uh, you know, I, I washed my hands of, of him. They said, we take responsibility for his death, we and our children. Isn't that a terrible thing, to take responsibility for your children too? To pass that curse on down to the next generation, the generation after that. God help us to have clear thinking and to think better than that. So, uh, so Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus to be flogged with a lead tip whip and he was turned over to the Roman soldiers for crucifixion. There was a tragedy in the mob's choice. You know, it was for God's will to be done, for Christ to die for us, but there's a tragedy in it. The Bible says in John chapter 3, 18 and 19, that there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, in Christ. 
no judgment. You will not stand before the court of judgment with a holy God that will demand that you pay for your sins because you have believed on him. And Jesus took your place on Calvary. But he goes on to say, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact, he says, that God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. Now maybe you may be watching from live stream or maybe someone here today, you haven't trusted in Christ yet as your personal Savior. You've been putting it off. Maybe like I did when I was a teenager, uh, 15 and a half to 18 years old, I was backslidden, turned away from the God who loved me and saved me on November 1st, 1969. And I was sinning. And, uh, and like Craig Rochelle said, a great pastor and mentor of mine, uh, people, uh, a church in uh, uh, Oklahoma City, he says this, he says, when he was a fraternity head, he said, I sinned, I sinned hard. And he said, sin was fun. And he said, if you say sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. But here's what he said. He said, I sinned, and yeah, I was having fun, but also I was overwhelmed with guilt and shame because of how I hurt people while I was sinning. So it was all about his pleasure and what he got out of it. And he hurt people, and he couldn't live with the pain and the guilt of hurting people. That's what drove him into the arms of Christ to be forgiven for his sins. And the same way, drove me into the arms of God at the age of 18 when I surrendered my life to Him. But I deliberately sinned, and yet God deliberately forgave me when I reached out to Him. And I can tell you one of the reasons that I held off giving my life to Jesus, because I, I wanted to return to, to the Lord, to serving Him, but I felt like God hated me, that God rejected me. But in reality, I was the one who rejected Him. His arms were still open. And I'm just saying this to tell you that if you were like me and you're staying away and you're just waiting because maybe you enjoy sin too much, I thought if I give my life to Jesus, I know I'm going to have to give this up. I have to give this and partying and going you know, to bars over in Kansas and you know, I'm going to get drunk and run around doing things that I shouldn't do. You know, here I, and when I gave my life to Jesus, when I came to an end of myself, after the grace and the mercy of God was applied to me, the Spirit of God filled me. I thought, I was lied to for those years. The enemy lied to me. He told me that I'm going to have so much fun doing what I want. I'm going to have fun being immoral. I'm going to have fun being drunk and being the life of the party because I was drunk doing stupid things. And I found out that it was all a lie. It was all a deception. It was a mirage. It wasn't real. It was a baited hook from the devil to drag my soul down to hell. And I'm just telling you, if you are where I sin, you might be having fun, but you don't know the consequences, the pain that is in your life, that is coming in your life. The devil has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give life and that more abundantly. It's the but God thing. Choose life. Say no to death and to hell. Turn your life over to Jesus Christ today. Surrender your life. He has a future and a hope for you that you will not find in a bottle or in drugs or in immorality or in material possessions that are not rightfully yours. Hurting people so that you can increase and get up higher. 
using people for stepping stones, treating people with hatred as if they're just tools for your pleasure. Surrender to Jesus. He died in your place. When the sins were laid upon him, he was the traitor. On the cross as he was there, the sins of the whole world were laid upon him. When they laid the sins upon him, he was the adulterer. He was the fornicator. He was the homosexual. He was the homosexual prostitute. He was the prostitute. He was the, the pimp. He became the thief, the robber, the murderer. So that you who committed these things could be washed and cleansed. And could be in right standing with God. So that you could be free from the pollution and the pain of all those choices that you thought looked so good to you, only to find out they were like paper tigers, ashes in your hands. God wants to deliver you from that. The mob chose Barabbas. I chose Jesus. Jesus willingly died in our place. Somebody says the Father made him. No, the Father shared the plan of eternal salvation for those who had sinned. And Jesus said, here am I, send me. Because the Father knew that only someone who was totally innocent would be an acceptable sacrifice for the cleansing of sin of mankind. Anybody less than perfect would not do the job. We sang this song, Oh, How the Holy Spirit Works. And the worship leader, Amy, is choosing that song today. Who is worthy, Revelation says, to open the book and break the seals? He is worthy. And because he was worthy, he was an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. That when God looked upon Jesus hanging on the cross in agony and suffering. He saw the sin of the entire world laid upon him. And the Father who cannot look upon sin because he is holy, pulled back, turned his back on his son. And at that very moment, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time in all eternity, the Father turned his back on the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who had become human flesh, performed signs, wonders, and miracles, who had resisted every temptation, was perfect, without sin, died on the cross, shedding his innocent blood as an atonement for our sin. And then Jesus said, It is finished. He died for our sins on the cross without sin. He resisted the temptation to call ten legions of angels to take him down and annihilate the world that had rejected him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is finished. The plan is done. It's finished. Three days, three nights in the tomb. And because he was without sin, the God, the Father, raised him up from the dead the stone was rolled away that had trapped him in because life cannot be sealed up in a tomb. And he walked free after conquering death and hell. 
Aren't you thankful that he's our substitutionary sacrifice? Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. We needed the innocent blood of the Lamb of God to take away our sin, not for a year as was in Judaism, but for eternity. Once for all, Peter says, he shed his blood. It was perfect, never needs to be done again. Listen, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, but we deserve to die, but Christ died in our place. The death of Christ brought our redemption, brought our redemption and our release, and we can place our trust in Christ today. We can trust Him as Lord and Savior. You can repent of your sins. I don't care. We listed off several of them from the Scriptures. Some are pretty horrible stuff. But as the Apostle Paul said, such were some of you. You used to be like that. You know what? But they had chosen to trust in Christ, and that was no longer on their record. There's no longer any charges against them because they had trusted in the perfect sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was substitutionary. So when he was crucified and we then accept his death for forgiveness of our sins, it is as though we were crucified for our sins and they were paid in full. We need to trust in him for that benefit to come to us. Would you bow your heads in prayer today as we close? Just with a a short question. Are you here today, maybe watching on live stream, we're praying for you too, but everybody head bowed, eye closed. If you are here today and you say, Pastor, I want to receive Christ as my substitutionary sacrifice. I want my sins to be forgiven and washed away. I want to, re- I want to give my life to Him so that He can work out His purposes for my future and my hope. Would you raise your hand quickly? I want to pray for you. Yes, amen. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Others? Yes, amen, amen, amen. Others? I'm going to have the anointing team come at this time too and be prepared to pray. I'm going to look one more time. Anybody else here today? If you're watching on live stream, you can can trust Christ as your Savior right now at home. I'm going to ask you that as we stand today, I'm going to ask that each and every one of us present ourselves to the Lord, to the Lord. And I'm going to ask you all to stand right now. Let's stand together. Before we close the service, we're going to open the altar. We still have about 15 minutes here to pray at the altar. And I'm going to encourage you to come if you need prayer for any reason. But I am going to ask you, Andy, would you pray for this gentleman over here? To my, And I'm going to ask you to just worship the Lord. I'm going to ask you to surrender your life to Jesus. And right now I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance for those at home. But I'm going to ask everyone here to pray it as if it was your first time. Just say, Father God, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is your one and only son who died on the cross in my place. He died for me. The guilty, he who was innocent, took my sin upon him. And I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. To cleanse me. To wash me with the blood of Christ. And oh God, come into my heart. Make me a new person in Christ. 
Write my name in the Lamb's book of life to identify me as yours for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, if you have prayed that prayer, you are what we call saved. You have been forgiven. You've been converted. You've been born again. And I'm just going to ask you, those walking, watching at home, is that you tell somebody about your commitment to Christ. And we have free resources for you here at the church. We have a Bible and we have other resources to help you get started. We have Bible studies and, and uh, many things to help you grow in your faith. But I'm going to ask you to do that. Would you do that and, and identify with Christ openly? And Father, I pray a blessing on them now in Jesus' name, those who have prayed this prayer. Pray a blessing on the people of God as well, Lord, that you would, Lord, fill their hearts, Lord, with anticipation of the future, of the hope that you have. That, Lord God, that we uh, prepare our hearts for Good Friday. We prepare our hearts, oh God, for the celebration of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.